loving them and understanding them, God now calls women to bless their husbands by giving them their submission and their admiration. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your, note the next phrase, own husbands as to the Lord. Now let me unwrap that. The word submit means to yield. Uh, you yield in your will to the direction and the guidance of your husband. Now, let me go ahead and deal with the issue very quickly. There is no inferiority in submissiveness. We're all submissive in some relationships of life. Furthermore, in the most important cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, we see this truth lived out perfectly in the way God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit relate to one another. Let's just take God the Father and God the Son. The Bible teaches with crystal clear clarity that whatever it is that makes God, God. God the Father is all of that. God the Son is all of that. And God the Holy Spirit is all of that. They are all three essentially ontologically, if you want to use a fancy philosophical word, but essentially equal to one another in their essence, all right? But let me ask you a question. Is God the Son submissive to God the Father in the assignment of redemption? Answer, yes. Yes. In the Gospel of John, Jesus can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Clear declarations of his deity. And yet he will also say, I only do that which the Father shows me. He even says, the Father is greater than I. Now that means something. And what it means is, though they are equally God and equal in essence, he joyfully submits in his assignment to save you and save me from our sins. There is no inferiority in being submissive in your relationship with your husband. Now, let me continue. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Not every man. Not every man. Uh, sometimes those of us that believe the Bible, that are evangelicals, that believe in the fundamentals of the faith, sometimes people read into the Bible what's not there. And so I'll take my own wife. My wife gladly, as I do, submits to the pastoral leadership of our church. And my wife also submits to me in our marital relationship. But she is not called by God, nor are any of you called by God, to submit to every man. You submit to your own husband. And then this very important phrase, as to the Lord. In other words, when a wife is yielding in her will to the leadership and the direction of her husband, she's actually yielding to the Lord Jesus. You, you honor Jesus when you yield in your relationship to your husband. Now, he gives you the rationale for this in verse 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let me focus on that phrase, in everything, for just a moment. Do I believe that Paul intends for us to understand that a wife is to submit to her husband in everything without any qualifications? And my resounding answer is no. That is not what he means. You say, so there are some times 
are some areas where I would not be called upon by God to submit. And that is correct. All right? When are those times? Where are those areas? And I think they're fourfold. If your husband were to ask you to do something that is illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, I think you have to say no. Illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical. In other words, I'll quote again Charlotte Aiken. If there ever comes a time in our marriage where I have to decide between obeying and honoring Jesus and honoring and obeying Danny, Danny is going to lose like every single time. And as her husband, I say amen. Because ultimately, she is responsible to Jesus and so if I ask her to do something that would be contrary to the clear will of God, she would be obligated in a loving but firm way to say, no, I cannot follow you and I cannot do what you are asking me to do. Now let me deal with another issue here. Does being submissive mean that a woman should also choose to stay in a very abusive physically dangerous situation and again my resounding answer is no it doesn't now let me again cards on the table I've been in the ministry for 45 years I have never counseled anyone to get a divorce I never have I've always held out and prayed for reconciliation now I know we live in a broken world and that's not always going to happen but I do believe that is what God would prefer, if at all possible. So I've never counseled anyone to get a divorce. I have, though, counseled, in particular, women to separate for a season. I've even counseled women to call law enforcement and have an abusive husband arrested. And so I do not believe that being submissive means you stay in a home where you're getting your brains beat out or you and your children are being abused or are threatening to be abused. I do not. I do not. So I do not believe it requires or would include that. In fact, again, let me be very clear. For those that are abused as a spouse, and it's most of the time women, 99% of the time, it's women. The church ought to be a safe haven. We ought to be set up where they know they can come and they're going to be protected they're going to be cared for. They're going to be watched over. And by the way, this is for free. We are fools, men, if we do not involve women in that process. I believe in pastoral leadership. I believe in, in the direction and leadership of elders. But I also know that when a woman is being abused and going through a very difficult time, it is not only wise, it's essential to have a woman or women involved in the process of caring for her and nurturing her and protecting her. So we ought to be that safe haven for women that find themselves in that kind of a situation. But outside of those particular areas, I believe with all of my heart that if you will honor your husband with your submission, God will use that to bless your marriage. In fact, very interestingly, you ought to note in the Bible, in fact, it's in there, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 5, on the admiration one. It's very interesting what Peter does there. <clears throat> Peter's dealing with this issue of submission. And here's what Peter says. Hey, lady. Hey, ma'am. 
married as a believer to an unsaved man, let me counsel you. Submit to that unsaved man that you might win him without a word. You say, what? Yep. Peter says, saved woman, married to unsaved man, you submit to him. Because in so doing, you may win him to Christ without a word. In other words, and I think you know this, but just to reiterate, you will never nag or gripe anybody into the kingdom. That is not going to happen. The Bible says that God honors a gentle and quiet spirit. And so here's my point, ladies. If you're here this morning and you're married to a saved man, how much more should you yield in your will to his direction and guidance as your servant leader if an unsaved uh, man is to have that same kind of submission given to him by a saved woman? So the Bible says you honor him with your submission. Secondly, the Bible says you honor him with your admiration. Last part of verse 33, and let the wife see that she respects, that she honors, that she admires her husband. So how does that flesh out in everyday living of life? Turn over to the next page. You'll see these same five things there, but here they're fleshed out again in a paragraph form. And ladies, let me say this. I'm absolutely convinced this is the way God has wired a man. Secondly, I believe this list is correctly prioritized with a little footnote that I will address at the end of this session. So just hang on for that because I think I can make an argument in the adjusting of the list in terms of its ordering. But you want to bless your husband, here you go. Number one, give him your admiration and Respect And look at the underlined phrase. Be proud of your husband, not out of duty, but as an expression of sincere admiration for the man you love and with whom you have chosen to share your life. Now, I cannot explain it, but this is what I know. Outside of the Lord Jesus, what my wife thinks about me matters to me more than anybody else. What my wife Charlotte thinks about me matters to me more than anybody else. I had somebody recently say, you know, because you're the president of a seminary, uh, people, you know, will take shots at you from time to time. Yeah, they do. It, it comes with the territory. And so I'll get, you know, uh, an ugly email or I'll get a, a, a nasty comment made on some social media avenue like Twitter or Facebook or something like that. And uh, they will say, well, how do you handle it? And I say, well, a couple of things. Number one, I, I agree with Billy Graham. Sometimes our critics are our best counselors. So even people that criticize me that don't know me, I'm at least going to weigh, is there some truth in what they are saying about me? And if there is, then I, I realize I need to work on that and I need to make an adjustment there. But I don't dwell on it. I don't dwell on it. In other words, I, I look at it. But it's just a glancing look because if I know that my wife loves me and admires me, if I know that my four sons love me and admire me, if I know my grandkids love their G-daddy, I don't give a flying flip what any of the rest of you think about me. I don't care. Number one, you don't know me. You don't know me. But they do know me. And if those who know me best love me and admire me and look up to me, I am just fine, and I cannot explain it, but 
God wired me and he wired, I think, almost every man in such a way that outside of Christ, what their wife thinks about them matters to them more than anybody else. So you can bless him with your admiration and respect. But number two, you knew this one was coming, provide sexual fulfillment. Look at the paragraph, become an excellent sexual partner to him. Study your own response to recognize and understand what brings out the best in you. And it is also underlined for a reason. Communicate this information to your husband so that together you can learn to have a sex relationship that you both find repeatedly satisfying and enjoyable. Now, we're all big people this morning, but I'm not going to cross any lines. But I do want to speak very directly about this wonderful, blessed thing that God has given us as a good gift from a great God called sex, all right? First of all, sex, God's idea. God's idea, not your idea, not my idea, God's idea. And personally, I think God was having a really good day when he came up with the sex thing. That's just my own opinion. But here's the deal. Just because everything fits physiologically does not mean that you're going to have a wonderful intimate life, a wonderful sex life. You say, why? Well, there are a number of reasons, one of which is this. Men and women approach this area from radically opposite perspectives. Very, very opposite perspectives. You say, what do you mean? Well, Gary Smalley gave, I think, a really good analogy when he said it this way. When it comes to intimacy, men are very much like microwave ovens. Women, on the other hand, are a whole lot like crock pots. And I didn't say crack pots. I said crock pots. Now you say, well, what does he mean by that? And this, by the way, is very instructive. How many, how many of you have teenagers? All right, listen up. You know this, but you need to be reminded. <clears throat> God made men as creatures of sight. And men are moved by what? They see. And when a man sees what he likes, he's like a microwave oven. Boom. He can heat up, and it takes him no time at all. Women, on the other hand, were made by God as creatures more of the ear and of the heart. And so like a crock pot, they have to kind of simmer and simmer. And yes, sometimes they have to simmer, simmer, simmer before they're going to be ready and be interested. And so when it comes to intimacy and coming together, we're coming at this from pretty different perspectives, all right? Let me say a second thing. The odds that you and your mate have identical sexual appetites is highly unlikely, but compatible almost certain. So let me say that again. Identical, probably not. Compatible, almost certain. So how do you know? Well, I learned this, interestingly, from a counseling session that a friend of mine had with a normal, regular woman just like you guys. And it's one of the most brilliant insights I've ever seen. Didn't get it out of a book. Didn't learn it from a PhD. Learned it from a regular old lady like one of y'all. And here's what happened. She comes to see my friend. She shares with him that uh, she is thinking about separating from her husband. And so he says to her, well, uh, what seems to be the, the problem that's causing you to think this would be a good thing to do? 
She said, well, I, I do need to say first and foremost, I do love my husband, and I know he loves me. And in so many ways, he's a, a great husband, and he's a wonderful daddy. But there's an area in our lives that has become so stressful. I mean, it's just such a, an area of contention. I, I really think I'm on the verge of, a, of an emotional breakdown. And I just think I need some space, and I, I need maybe some time away would help. And so he said, well, what, what's the problem? And she said, well, it's, it's our sex life. My husband's a fanatic. He wants sex 24-7. I mean, if I weren't saying no as often as I do, we'd just be having sex all the time. So he's always pressuring me, and, it, and it's just become a place of, I mean, fight and, and, and arguing and stress. And I, I, again, I, I think I'm about to have it. A breakdown. So I'm just thinking maybe separation would work. What do you think? Well, this friend of mine is a very good counselor, and he's also kind of playful. And so he said, well, I tell you what, can I give you an assignment to try to implement for one week and see if maybe it has any effect? She said, well, what is it? And so he said, well, here's the deal. This was on a Friday. He said, uh, can you get rid of the kids over the weekend? She said, yeah, I, I, can, I, I can send them to my parents. He said, great, get rid of the kids over the weekend. What time will your husband be home from work? She said, about 5.30. He said, great. The moment he walks through the door, you grab him by both of his ears and you drag him to the bedroom and you have sex with him. You can feed him dinner. And then after dinner, drag him back. Watch a little TV. One more time before you go to sleep. Wake him up Saturday morning at 6 o'clock. Do it again. Feed him some breakfast. He'll probably need it by then. And then do it again. Feed him lunch. Do it again. He said, basically, what I want to encourage you to do for one week is become a huntress. And you track your husband down as many times as you can, and you have sex with him. Can you do that? And I'm a little offended by her answer, but she said, being a typical woman, I'd do anything for one week. So anyway, she went home, and she was supposed to call the counselor the next Friday to give him an update. Well, she didn't call him the next Friday. She called him on Monday. And she said to him, I don't know what you are trying to do, but I think it may have worked. My husband is over in the corner of the bedroom, and he is waving a white handkerchief at me. She said, he's got a real scared look in his eye, and we've just had both a good long laugh and a good long cry because, and I've never forgotten this, something that should have drawn us together for 16 years almost tore us apart, all because, and it was underlined and is underlined for a reason, because we did not talk. She said he was always putting on the full court press because he knew that my default answer anytime he wanted to have sex was what? No. And so because my default answer was no, he was always putting on the full court press. And you know what? After we talked, we have learned, and this is where I got it, not out of a book from a woman that I think was brilliant. Our appetite in this area is not identical, but it is certainly compatible. 
And we could have saved ourselves years and years of pain and sorrow if we had just talked. Now, if you take your notes, came across this a few years ago in Reader's Digest on page 10. It is entitled, What Do Happy Couples Say About Sex? They did survey work among folks that claimed to be happily married and to have a happy, intimate life. And they came up with ten things. I added the last two because I just felt that, biblically speaking, they were essential as well. But what do couples who've had uh, years of, uh, of joy in intimacy, intimacy, intimacy say about sex? Well, number one, they make sex a priority. Uh, it's important to them. So it's a focus of their marital attention. Number two, they make time for sex. Now, this requires a little attention. You say, why? Because different stages of life require different strategies. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, think about it. When you first get married, it's just you and your mate. You just kind of have sex anytime you want. But out of sex emerges these giant cockroach creatures called children. And folks, children are not an aid to your sex life. They are the result of your sex life, but they do not bless or enhance your sex life. Goodness, when we got married and began to do what married people do, we got pregnant pretty quick, and God gave us twins. I'm pretty convinced that those twins were demon-possessed. I, I do now know why some animals eat their young. I understand this. Because they would not sleep, and then they, they tag-teamed. They would get up, one, we'd put them down at 10, and if you're smart, when they go to bed, what do you do? You go to bed. You jump in that bed. Well, one would get up at 1, 1 at 3, 1 at 5, wanted seven. I mean, it was about to kill us. My poor wife, I mean, I can't do what women do when it comes to taking care of a baby. And so we go to church one Sunday. True story. She's a beautiful uh, brown-eyed brunette. But her hair's messed up. Her lipstick smeared. Her makeup doesn't look good. Her dress is all disheveled. And this sweet lady comes up to her by God's amazing grace. She'd had twins. And she says, sweetheart, how are you doing? Well, that was the wrong question to ask. She just burst into tears. They won't play, they don't sleep. They cry, da, 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 da. And so she says, well, darling, when one wakes up, you wake the other one up. And my wife is crying still. She says, well, that's, that would be mean. She says, not as mean as what they're doing to you. You wake both of their tails up at the same time. Well, at least got us to one to five to nine. But here's my point. Sex? Are you kidding me? My God, we could barely drag our tails out of bed, much less have sex, all right? So when the kids show up, by the way, Song of Solomon, my favorite book in the Bible, eight chapters. Let me ask you a question. See how well you know your Bible? How many times are children mentioned in the Song of Solomon? Zero. Nada. None. Why? Because Song of Solomon is God's sex manual. And sex is not enhanced with the presence of little children running around and not waking and waking up and not sleeping through the night. But praise God, praise God, they grow up, they become adolescents and teenagers, and you can kind of get back to a good routine. Just make sure you got locks on the door. Just a word to the wise there. But then, praise God, they leave. 
They leave. Now, I know some of you that got teenagers, you're already like, oh, you're weepy. You know, oh, my baby's going to go to school in a few years. It's going to be so sad. Sad. Dear God, when our kids left the home, it was so exciting. I nearly became Baptocostal. It was wonderful. Because it's like a honeymoon all over again, but this time you got money. I mean, it's a great deal. It really is. It's a wonderful deal. So you ain't going to whine. and you, you'll, you'll whine for about a week. And then you're like, praise God. This is wonderful. But the problem is they come back. And, of course, they're like locusts descending upon your home. They eat all your food. They destroy stuff. They still think, you know, it's amazing. I am 65 dang years old. My boys are 41, 41, 38, and 37. And they still think that I'm their daddy. And they just go anywhere they want in our house. They, they get into my drawers. They take my clothes. I, I know they steal my money. I just can't figure out how and when they do it. They, and they don't care. They, they, I, mean, I mean, he's my daddy. It's what we did when we were little. We'll just keep doing that. I guess they'll do it until the day they put me in a pine box, all right? But my point again is different seasons of life require different strategies when it comes to the time thing, all right? Number three, they stay emotionally intimate. Number four, because they talk, they know how to touch and what works. I guess we could say what blesses and pleases their mate. By the way, real quickly, no man in particular, but no man or woman will ever ask their mate to do something in the area of intimacy that they find either harmful or distasteful. You will never do that. Now, I believe that God is all for creativity in the intimate part of marriage. The marriage bed is undefiled and all is honorable. But a godly man, a godly woman would never, ever ask their mate to do something they find harmful or displeasurable. Number five, they keep romance alive. How? Well, by meeting each other's needs. We're talking about those right now. Number six, they keep their sexual anticipation alive. Number seven, they know how to play and foreplay both in and out of bed. It has been well said, a happy girl outside the bedroom usually equals a happy guy inside the bedroom. Number eight, they know how to talk to each other. Number nine, and the longer you're married, the more this becomes critically important. They remain lovers and friends. Number 10, they maintain a sense of humor, and they know how to laugh. And I've added in my note, especially at themselves. Especially at themselves. And then number 11, they want to please each other. You know, in every marriage, Philippians 2, 3 through 5 should be memorized. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with a humble mind esteem the other better than yourself. Look out, not only for your own interest, but also the interest of the other. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So in my marriage, my goal is to please Charlotte. Charlotte's goal is to please me. And guess what happens? We both wind up with big old smiles on our face. And then number 12, they cherish each other as a sacred and precious gift of God. And this is what happy couples say about their intimate life, all right? Go back to page seven. Number three, cultivate home support. Cultivate home support. Create a home that offers your husband an atmosphere of peace, quiet, and refuge. Manage the home and the care of the children. The home, it should be a place of rest and rejuvenation for your husband. And remember... 
the wife, the mother, she is the emotional hub of the family. Now, this may not be fair, ladies, but we, I think all in this room know it to be true. There's a colloquial saying that summarizes it perfectly. In the home, if mama ain't happy, what? Ain't nobody going to be happy. Now you say, well, that ain't fair. It may not be fair, but we, we're big people. How many times have you told your kids, what? Life ain't fair, all right? It may not be fair, but it's true. Why? Because you are the emotional center and hub of the family. I, I like it this way. You're the thermostat. You're the thermostat. And when your thermostat goes up high, it ain't just hot for you. It's hot for everybody. Get that puppy back down, though, to about 70 65 or praise God 60 and it's cool for everybody because you're the thermostat of the home now I want to be fair before I go on I've discovered over the years that a good godly woman who loves Jesus can still have a bad day okay I want to be fair guys got to come some slack good godly woman loves Jesus they can have a bad day all right I mean think about my poor wife I don't know why God did this to her but God condemned my wife to live in a male dormitory of five boys for like 20 years. 20 years. True story. I came home one day. I don't know what had happened. Charlotte meets me at the front door and says, let me tell you something. Boys will do things a dog won't do. To this day, I do not know what they did, and I don't care to know what they did. I'm pretty sure that what she said is accurate. But I also learned this. One woman can really handle five men. I mean, y'all really can. Y'all are that adept and that creative and, and just got that kind of ability. And so in our house, on those rare occasions that uh, mama was having a bad day, we came up with a code. And the code was mama has got that look in her eye. And that was our way of warning one another just to be careful and kind of, you know, quiet and don't cross your path. And so we'd be in the house. I, I'd come home from work. And the boys would just walk by and they'd go. And I knew. Okay. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the warning. And I, I just kind of conducted myself a little more carefully. Well, again, true story. Came home one day. Got out of the car. All of a sudden, out come four sons on the front porch. Shut the door. And they're just waiting on me. And I forget. I think they were like, oh, I don't know, 11, 11 eight and seven Timothy our youngest as I got up on the porch he's the verbal one as the little ones always are said hey dad need to talk to you the looks back and it's back big time this time and you need to go in the house and do something okay I appreciate that admonition son I go check things out so I walked into our house and if you came into our foyer here was the living room there was the kitchen. Well, I looked in the kitchen, and there she was. Now, she was at the sink, so I could only see her backside, because like most houses, the sink was at the back wall, and so she's there doing her thing. And I can tell you, folks, even though all I could see was her backside, by the way that woman was conducting her business at that sink, yeah, I knew the look was there. I, I didn't have to have her. In fact, I felt like her eyes popped out and stared at me. It, it, it made me so nervous. So I quietly backed out of the house, shut the door, and I got my boys in a male huddle. And I said, well, guys, uh, you're right. Uh, the look's back, and it, it seems to be back pretty big. And, 
And Tim again said, well, great, Dad. What are we supposed to do? And I said, well, guys, here's Dad's counsel. Every man for himself. <laughs> I, I said, I've seen this look, and I, I, I'm going to leave her alone. And I suggest you leave her alone. And if you cross her path, don't call for me. Because I'm not coming. We, we are all on our own. And so sometimes those days happen. But ladies, listen to me. And this is the only time I'll be hard on you. It's one thing to have a bad day. It's another thing like to have a bad life. Okay? And if you go home this afternoon and you look up Proverbs 9, 13, 19, 13, 21, 9, 21, 19, and 25, 24, you will discover that not Danny Aiken, but God says, a man would rather live in the desert, in the attic, or on the roof than with, and the old King James said, a contentious woman. That's a fancy King James way of saying that you gripe and you nag and you say well what will a man do if he's married to a wife that gripes and nags all the time it's very easy fight or flight fight or flight now let me unwrap those very quickly fight some men will physically fight their wives but most men don't you say why not because they go to jail where they belong uh, we do know this, spousal abuse is more than twice as common among those who cohabit as opposed to those who are married. So most married men do not hit their wives because it strips them of their masculinity. They deserve to go to jail. I'd throw the key away if I were king of the world. They'd never get out. So that's not what most men do. So they might fight you verbally, but they won't do that very long either. You say, why not? Because we get beat every time. We can't whoop y'all. You say, well, why not? Well, it's just very simple. You're better at it than we are. I mean, you're like a machine gun. And we're like a little pop gun. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you want some documented facts that sociologists have given us? The average man, this is across the board, the average man is capable of uh, generating about 10 to, 10 to 12,000 words a day. The average male, 10 to 12,000 words a day. The average female, 20 to 25,000 words a day, with gust up to 50. And uh, I'm kidding about the gust now. That's a joke. That's a joke. Don't you get mad at me. That's a joke. But here's the deal. Women are verbal animals. God made you that way. So we are not very good at Look, I get paid for talking, all right? And I talk more than the average male, okay? In fact, I probably am the only human being on the planet that in the eighth grade made an A in my sociology class and got an F in conduct. So how'd you pull that off? Yuck, 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 yuck. Look, in the third grade, Mrs. Pruitt, she'd be in jail today and she deserves it. She literally taped my mouth with masking tape. Take my, I mean, that's embarrassing. I'm still in counseling over that. No, I'm not. But she taped my mouth. Why? Because I just, I was hyper. First of all, this is for free. Who in the heck came up with an educational system and format that requires little boys to sit in a desk for six hours a day? 
That has got to be the stupidest, most idiotic, malformed form of education I've ever heard in my life. That is not the way God made little boys. Let them run around, run around, run around, and then they'll be ready to stop for a while, then run around. No, you get 30 minutes for P.E. a day. Are you kidding me? And Dad, come in when it rains, you don't get to go outside. I mean, I would go into manic depression when it would rain. So she, she not only take my mouth, since we're here, she tied me to my desk. Yes, she should be in jail. I'm sure she's dead now, but that's just not right. But anyway, so I'm a talker. But I can't beat my wife in a verbal battle. She, 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 first of all, she can talk very fast, but here's my problem. Women use female logic. Use female logic. And female logic's like a stun gun. You're talking with your wife, and she says something, and you're like, I, I, I would never think like that. Like in 10,000 millennia, I'd never, and, and you can't respond. You're like, I'm stunned. I, I don't have a response. And she's on down the road, and it's over. You're, you're done. So if they don't fight, what do they do? They take flight. Some men walk out of their marriages. That's not right. Some men will give them a little credit. They stay married, but they still walk away. So what do you mean by that? They become workaholics. Or they're that guy that's involved in a 1,001 extracurricular activities. In a place like this, you're the guy that's always out there hunting and fishing. Always hunting and fishing. Or like if you live in the urban areas, you play on softball teams in the spring and softball teams in the summer and softball teams in the fall. I mean, you drag your old body out there like a blooming mummy. You got so much tape wrapping it all up. And I mean, I got news for you. If you're in this room, you're never going to play for the Braves. You're never going to play for the Rangers or the Astros. It's not, it's not on your radar screen. So just go ahead and realize those days are not coming back if they ever were, all right? But that's what guys will do. Why? Because a guy just cannot stand to be around a woman that gripes and nags. He, he goes home to get rest and rejuvenation. And rather than that, it sucks more energy out of him. And again, I know your husband's not perfect. You're not responsible for your husband, just like he's not responsible for you. You are responsible for you before God. And he is responsible for him before God. And all you can do is work on you. And in this area, you can bless him by working hard to provide a home of rest and rejuvenation, a home of support. All right? Number four, strive to be an attractive wife. Pursue inner and outer beauty in that order. Cultivate a Christ-like spirit in your inner self. Keep yourself physically fit with diet and exercise. Wear your hair, makeup, and clothes in a way your husband finds attractive and tasteful. Let your husband be pleased and proud of you, both in public, but also in private. Now, let me unwrap this. If you pay attention to that paragraph, you see that a woman's beauty is fourfold. It is inner, outer, public, private. Okay? Inner, outer, Public, private. Let's start with the most important, inner beauty. Inner beauty. Where you are indeed growing to be more like Jesus. And here's the beauty about inner beauty. Ladies, the prettier you are in here, the more attractive you become out here. The prettier you are on the inside, the more attractive you become on the outside. By the same token, if you're not pretty in here, I don't care if you are drop-dead gorgeous. After a while, people that are around you will not find you attractive. 
because what's in here makes such a difference on what's out here. He wants you to be attractive inwardly, but outwardly, publicly and privately. And let me say this, ladies. One of the beauties about marriage is, and about life is that different men find different women attractive. In fact, let me show you this. In the Song of Solomon, which I love, I've written three books on it, so I know it pretty well. It's my favorite book. Solomon, three times in that book, describes Shulamith from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. Three times. And there's something you know and something you don't know. What you do know is he found her absolutely irresistible and drop-dead gorgeous. What you don't know is what she looked like. You have no idea because he's using rustic, uh, poetic, metaphorical imagery and languages. I mean, you get the ideas of what he's talking about, but you don't know what she looks like. But you do know he found her beautiful. And here's what's also neat. The longer they're married, the more detailed and precise he becomes in his praise of her physical appearance. In other words, he thought she got prettier and prettier and prettier. And I want to be honest with you this morning. If you ask me today, all right, what does your ideal woman look like? That's easy. She looks like a 63-year-old brown-eyed brunette, which I've got one, and I'm going to keep her. And folks, if you told me when I was 21 years old, that someday I would find a 63-year-old woman absolutely irresistible. I would have told you, you'd have lost your mind. But that's exactly what God has done as we've grown closer and closer together all these years. So he wants you to be attractive publicly. Kind of sweet. Can you believe someone that looks like this married someone like me? But also he wants you to be attractive privately too. And I don't want to make you ladies mad at me this morning. I don't. But I do need to say a quick word to you about this very evil, wicked thing I believe was created in the place where the devil will spend all of eternity called a flannel gown. Can I just talk to you for a moment about the evil, wicked, yea, demonic nature of flannel gowns? Because here's the deal, ladies. There is no such thing as a sexy flannel gown. It does not exist. You say, how do you know? I've looked. I've looked. I've looked all over the country. I, I've gone into Victoria's Secret. I used to go into Fredericks of Hollywood when it was around, incognito, of course. And I would say, hey, guys, I'm trying to find a, a sexy flannel gown for my wife. And they would look at me like I was an idiot. Bro, we ain't got no sexy flannel gown. Those don't exist. Now, you'll love this. About 20 years ago, I was speaking in Mississippi, in Laurel, Mississippi. I'll never forget it. Because I shared this wonderful insight, and after the service, this young lady came up to me, and if looks could kill, I wouldn't be here this morning. She was mad, red the face, got right up in my face, a little short thing, but got right up in, like up on her toes, right in my face, and said, my husband wants to talk to you, and she walks away. And I'm like, good night. What, what in the world caused that? Well, here he comes. He ain't mad. No. That boy is grinning from this ear to this ear. He gets up to me, gives me a big old bear hug and says, man, where have you been all my married life? I want to invite you over the house tonight. We're going to have a granny gown bonfire. I'm burning them all. Now, and I have to be careful here. I've only had one man in my life disagree with me about this. I can't remember where I was, but I spoke on this subject. 
And after the service, about a 70-year-old man came up to me. Now, let me say, this guy was an old codger. And I don't think every old man is an old codger, but you know what I mean. He had that devilish twinkle in his eye, and you knew. This guy has been in mischief all of his life, and he'll be mischievous till the day he dies. So he comes up to me, and he, he literally hits me in the ribs with his fist. It, it hurt. I mean, he popped me pretty good. And I grabbed my rib, and I said, yes, sir. And he said, young fella, I need to have a conversation with you about them flannel gowns because you're all wrong. And so I'm rubbing my ribs, and I said, well, really? And he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I'm quoting him. I'm just quoting him. He said, my old lady and me have been married for 50 years, and she's got a sexy flannel gown. I love it. So I'm still rubbing my ribs, and I said, well, sir, I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of taken back. I've never had anybody tell me they, they liked their wife's flannel gown. And he said, I didn't say I liked it. I said, I love it. He said, uh, it's old. It's got holes all in it. And I go to bed at night, it's like going treasure hunting in that flannel gown. And I, I blushed. I, I, I've heard everything, okay? I never heard that. I turned red as a tomato. And so he said, so get your, get your old lady a, a, a holy flannel gown. And you'll like it too. And he hits me in the ribs again, and he walks away. So if you got one that's got a lot of holes in it, he might make an exception. But other than that, stay away from the flannel. I'm moving on. Number five. You bless your husband by becoming his best friend. Now let me hit this and we'll take our break. When I got married, did I think I was marrying my best friend? No. Now I need to be fair to us. We had no premarital counseling. None. You say, why not? Well, back then it wasn't as big a deal. Secondly, I was living in Dallas, Texas. God had called me to the ministry. I'd gone to Bible college for a year. I actually went to Bible college in uh, August of 1977. Went back in December to Atlanta, Georgia. Asked Charlotte to marry me. She said yes. I went back to Dallas, Texas. Came home for one week. We got married on a Saturday. We drove to Dallas on Sunday. Monday was Memorial Day. And Tuesday, she went to work and I went back to school which is not how I have ever counseled anyone to get started. But, you know, we were young and dumb and in love, and it's worked out. So, one, we weren't near each other. Secondly, this is to this day one of the most heartbreaking experiences of my life. The Sunday before the next Saturday when we got married, our pastor of 20 years announced that he and his wife were separating and getting a divorce. So we met with him the next morning, and he said to us, you know, I normally have some things I say to a young couple uh, uh, before they get married, but after last night, I just don't feel like I can say anything, so I'll just see y'all at the rehearsal dinner, and that was the totality of our premarital counseling. So no one ever talked to me about being a friend. I was marrying this beautiful brown-eyed brunette that was sweet and kind and had all sorts of abilities in areas where I was totally deficient. But folks, 44 years later, I can say this morning to you without any hesitation that the very, very, very best friend I have in all the world is my wife, Charlotte. And when you, in fact, I'll talk about this in the last session. When I counsel a, a young couple, I'll always talk to them about being and working to be best friends. And here's the beauty of that. Remember I said I had a little footnote at the end of this session? Here it is. Over the years of being married... I think number five starts climbing the ladder, and it moves past number four, and past number three, 
and past number two. And actually, it takes the place and becomes number one. And here's the beauty of that. If you and your husband are best friends, I promise you, he'll find you attractive. And if you and your husband are best friends, that home will be a place of support, rest, and rejuvenation. And if you and your husband are best friends, you will also be lovers. And if you and your husband are best friends, he will believe and know that you admire him and respect him. So you see, if uh, Brother Charlie had said to me, Danny, something's come up this morning. You got two minutes. That's all we can do. I would have said, great. Number one, I would say to all of you this morning, you need to make sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And secondly, you just work really hard at growing to be best friends. And I can make two promises for you in your marriage. Number one, your marriage will last and go the distance. And number two, your marriage will be a blessing. Why? Because number one, best friends don't give up on their best friends. That's why they're best friends. And number two, best friends like hanging out with their best friends. So best friends just has kind of a way of putting an umbrella over all these other things that we've talked about this morning in these first two sessions. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for all the precious ladies here this morning. I pray that you will bless them to be the kind of godly wives and mothers that will be a blessing to their husbands and their children, but also and most of all, the kind of women that will bring great praise and honor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.